0: We looked at each other, and it was just like this moment of happiness. Our oldest was there, and so he was excited to have a little sister. But the anatomy scan took a while. It it seemed a little weird. She talked about a a lemon shape or banana-shaped brain, and then she said she predicted a certain diagnosis. She's used the term spina bifida. All I heard was, there's something wrong with your baby.
1: This is Care Plus Cures, Advancing Children's Health in Silicon Valley, a podcast brought to you by the Lucille Packard Foundation for Children's Health. Through the Care Plus Cures podcast, we share stories of triumphs and challenges by uniting patient families, doctors, care team members, and donors like you to advance transformative health care for children. I'm Sarah Davis, a donor and your host for this episode. For most expectant parents, finding out the gender of your baby at your 20-week appointment is an exciting milestone. But for Karen and Angel, it was a moment their lives changed forever. Today, we're talking to Dr. Yasser Al-Sayed, Obstetrician-in-Chief at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. Dr. El Said leads the maternal and fetal medicine programs at Packard Children's, offering specialized comprehensive care to expectant moms with high-risk pregnancies like Karen and non You'll hear more from them soon. Dr. El Said, I'd love to start by learning a little bit more about you. What ignited your passion for caring for expectant moms and their babies? And what keeps you motivated every day?
2: Well, thank you, Sarah, and thank you for having me. My interest in obstetrics in moms and babies really came as a surprise to me. I had envisioned a different kind of medical career. I always wanted to be a physician, but I had never thought of obstetrics as a career. And it happened very serendipitously in medical school. I was going to be on call for labor and delivery on a rotation as a medical student, and I was finishing up another rotation. So I wandered over to labor and delivery so that I could familiarize myself with where I was supposed to go. It was in the middle of the night, and I saw a patient being wheeled out of a room, being rushed into an operating room. She was hemorrhaging, and a very nice nurse asked me what I was doing there. And I said, Well, I'm, I'm a medical student, and I'll be here first thing in the morning. And I was, I thought I better familiarize myself with where I was supposed to go. And she said, okay, well, come with me, stand in this corner in the operating room. Don't move, don't touch anything and don't say anything. And I'd done trauma surgery rotations. I'd done internal medicine rotations. I'd seen gallbladders removed and livers removed and What was amazing as I stood in that room, and it's a moment I'll never forget, was an emergency cesarean section, and out came a human being. And it was a moment that completely captivated me. I knew right then, this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to be part of this discipline and to engage with it in some way.
1: That's amazing. It's the creation of human life in front of you.
2: It it was. It's an image that's really seared into my mind uh, and really all thanks to a very nice nurse at three in the morning who, who was kind enough to kind of guide me to a place where I could just watch.
1: And I'm also wondering about what keeps you motivated every day.
2: I am fortunate that I work in an environment where it is so rich in experience whether I am caring for patients, and I, as a high-risk obstetrician, I care for patients with very complicated pregnancies, or whether it's teaching residents and medical students and actually learning from them as well, or whether it's doing research and trying to advance the science of maternal and fetal medicine, the variety of And the richness of experience is profound in each of these areas. Any one of them could be enough to motivate one to continue. Caring for a complicated pregnancy is a huge privilege. You have the opportunity to make such a difference in the life of not one person, sometimes not two people, sometimes it's three people or four people, triplets or quadruplets, but an entire family. For decades. And it's a very profound and meaningful experience and profession. And then you add on to that the environment that I am in, where it is so rich in education and in learning and in research. There's just no way that one cannot feel motivated, actually truly blessed to do what you get to do every day.
1: When Karen and Hal found out their unborn baby had spina bifida, they were told they had three options. They could terminate the pregnancy, wait until the baby was born to have surgery, or apply to be part of a new groundbreaking fetal surgery. The trial was happening in Texas in partnership with Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Stanford and had shown promising results. Dr. Said's team, led by Dr. Yar Blumenfeld, would travel with the family to perform the
0: surgery in Texas. I would always ask, why did this happen? You know, I, I tried to do things right. I tried to take care of my body. Why did this happen? And I think he sensed that I felt guilt, that I blamed myself for it. And he was always very reassuring. And he help me or at least just explain to me that it was not my fault that there wasn't enough research out there to understand why it happens and and that I needed to believe that it wasn't my fault and it's really tough to believe that that you caused your children harm and he was just such an awesome doctor to just be able to tell me there isn't research out there to say that this was your fault this is not your fault they could not guarantee that the baby would survive the surgery, and they also could not guarantee that nothing would happen to me. We decided that it was worth the risk, and we decided to go on with the process of undergoing the surgery.
1: doctor Al Saeed, maternal and fetal surgery sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. We always think of expectant parents being so careful with what they eat, drink, activities they do to protect the baby, and now we're going in to have surgery on a fetus. This has to be terrifying for parents. Can you tell me more about the fetal program?
2: We have a wonderful fetal program here, and it was built in many ways quite differently than a lot of other fetal programs. Some fetal programs are built primarily on a fetal surgery platform, and then everything kind of develops from there. We chose a different path. The first thing we did was to establish a platform of multidisciplinary care of high-risk obstetricians, neonatologists, radiologists, pediatric surgeons, pediatric cardiologists, all working together in terms of how to manage broadly these complex fetal anomalies. So we built a very robust platform of integration along those lines. And then onto that, we built the fetal therapy program. So it wasn't the inverted pyramid. The base is really that of multidisciplinary collaboration. Many of these patients never need fetal surgery. But for those that do, we do it on a very safe foundation and a very thoughtful foundation. And we always keep in mind that the mother's health is front and center, that any time you try and do therapy on a fetus, you have to go through another human being. And you expose that other human being to risk, both immediate as well as subsequent risk. And so, Our approach, our counseling is very cognizant of that highly complex ethical issue. And I think we do a really great job at counseling and at consenting for complicated procedures. We do at this point really the full spectrum of fetal therapy. We treat a disorder called twin-twin transfusion where one baby is pumping blood into its twin across the placental vessels. And we can go in with a laser and separate their fates, so to speak. And untreated, the mortality rate is 100%. Treated, much different and much improved outcomes for both babies. We employ shunts to relieve certain obstructions or to drain abnormal fluid collections in the fetus. We do a neural tube Defect repair. So babies in the uterus with spina bifida, a disorder where the neural tube does not close appropriately. And these babies can have lifelong complications after birth. We ameliorate those complications by repairing that defect while the fetus is still in the uterus and protecting that open area of the spine from damage so that after birth, the outcome For the baby is hopefully much improved. We are launching a program now to repair fetal diaphragmatic hernia using minimally invasive technology. And that's a disorder where there's a hole in the diaphragm and the intestinal organs essentially are displaced into the chest, compressing the lungs, compressing the heart. And by using a certain minimally invasive approach, we are able to displace those organs back into the abdomen, allowing space for the lungs to develop normally. And we're engaged in a national study on babies who have a complication where they don't have kidneys. When they don't have kidneys, they don't form amniotic fluid. When they don't form amniotic fluid, their lungs don't develop. They can't survive. We are part of a large study and a major contributor to a large study of instilling amniotic fluid back into the sac repeatedly and that way allowing the lungs to continue to develop so that after birth the baby can survive and can go on to dialysis and then to transplantation of kidneys. So these are all very important and novel approaches in fetal therapy But they all involve procedures on the mother. They all involve maternal risk. And they all involve surgery and therapy that is not always minimally invasive. And our goal is to be as minimally invasive as possible. It would be wonderful one day to repair spina bifida by simply injecting certain stem cells into the area of the defect. It would be wonderful to treat certain genetic disorders, certain blood disorders, certain neurodegenerative disorders in the fetus by injecting stem cells. And I am confident we will actually get there and continue to reduce the maternal risk exposure while dramatically altering lifelong neonatal outcome and impact on the family as a whole.
1: Is there a recent patient story that comes to mind?
2: There are many. There is one that has been talked about publicly and was quite notable. And in the era of COVID, we had a young woman who was pregnant and came down with COVID. She was not from the Bay Area. She was from a place further south and was flown up to Stanford because her condition was so critical. The last thing she says she remembers when she talked about this experience was someone telling her that we are going to be flying you out to Stanford because we can't take care of you here. And she talks about this publicly. And that's the last she remembers because she spent, I believe it was 45 days on ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, where her lungs were so damaged by... COVID, that she had to be sustained on this very special technology while pregnant. And then having to monitor that pregnancy, having to have the kind of multidisciplinary care in a very unique and complex situation with doctors from a huge variety of specialties to try and sustain her and sustain the pregnancy. And in the end, having to deliver her while she was on ECMO. And she survived. And the baby survived. And it is those kinds of experiences, as dramatic and at times extreme as they can be, that really, I think, highlights amazing work that we are able to do now, the life-saving work that we are able to do now, in ways that we could not have done even a few years before. So in the midst of what was a tragedy of global proportions played out on a very personal level to this family and to this patient, we were able to engage with her and save her life and save the baby's life and offer a better future.
1: I imagine that must have been so terrifying to have COVID and be giving birth at the same time.
2: It was terrifying for all of us. It was the first time we had done something like that, delivering somebody on an ECMO machine. The levels of complications associated with it, having to operate on someone whose blood is being thinned and the surgical complications that come from it were really daunting And it couldn't have happened without the availability and resources in a place like Stanford, which is why she was flown up here.
1: Recently, Packard Children's Hospital received a transformative $100 million gift from the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. This donation will help to transform the current West Building, where expectant, laboring, and new moms receive care alongside their newborn babies. How will the transformation of this space affect patients?
2: We are just so incredibly excited about this transformation. I, you know, I, I came to Stanford as an intern, thirty-one or thirty-two years ago, and the changes since then have been obviously dramatic in our program, in our faculty, in our capabilities, in our research. But one thing that was always a challenge. Was our landscape. We had a very busy obstetrical service in a space that was not built for that level of volume. We had outgrown it both in terms of volume, but also I think in terms of the landscape being able to accommodate the kind of technologies we needed it to, to provide the kind of care that we needed to in a seamless way. And so, This new space not only dramatically expands the size of labor and delivery, dramatically expands the size of the rooms in labor and delivery, allows us to more seamlessly care for both normal and complex patients. We have grown the number of labor rooms to allow us to accommodate more patients easily. We are referred patients locally We're referred patients regionally and we're referred patients globally, and our goal is to have access. And this new space will expand that kind of access for our local and our global community. Our operating rooms right now, where we do wonderful things and life-saving things, are in need of transformation and in need of being reimagined, and this new space does that. I often joke that looking at those operating rooms, it almost makes you want to have surgery. They're so beautiful and so high tech. And so it's really in many ways just a dream come true for us that we uh, have worked so hard and I think taking care of the sickest of the sick in a wonderful space, a space that will always be beloved to us, but that needed to be reimagined in order to live up to the vision of uh The founder of this hospital. And we now will be able to achieve that. In addition, we have patients who spend many weeks, some months in the hospital due to pregnancy complications. We now will be able to house them in a special unit for them right next to labor and delivery with a lounge, with a beautiful aesthetic, and a sense of home for patients really who spend an incredible amount of time in the hospital because of the high-risk nature of their pregnancy. We haven't had that before. And this, this new space, this reimagined space will have that special unit there. So in terms of being able to care for more patients, you know, in terms of being able to carry out that care in a more seamless way for both the, the nurses, the physicians, And in terms of being able to incorporate the latest technologies into this setting, I think this reimagined space will accomplish all of that.
1: I want to go back to something you were saying about complicated situations. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about one of those complications that could happen and why mothers would need a different space.
2: Yes, you know, there are many patients, thank God, most patients who have completely Wonderfully uneventful pregnancies. And that's what we hope for for everyone. But the reality is, even the lowest risk patient can develop unexpected complications. And Stanford is really unique in that you have this ordinary full service children's hospital where the obstetric suite is physically attached to a world class full-service adult hospital, where we have worked very hard to have seamless integration of experts and faculty and equipment and resources for our obstetric population. So that 24-7, if a pregnant mom needs a cardiologist, if she needs a nephrologist, if she needs to be transferred to an adult ICU, if she needs a different kind of operating room because she has a disorder like, say, placenta accreta, we have all that at one site physically integrated. The children's hospital is not city blocks away from the adult hospital and all the adult resources. We are able to have our patients deliver in a full-service children's hospital that can care for their newborns well or complicated, and at the same time, care for that adult patient seamlessly because we are physically connected to an adult hospital. And these complications, again, it's not as if they represent in any way a majority of births, but they, but in a place like Stanford, they represent a substantial amount of the births that we have to be ready to care for. We have a high risk population at baseline. And what is unique is that we are a community hospital and a high risk hospital all in one. We are also the safety net hospital for San Mateo County. It is a very wonderful and unique environment. So we have to be ready to provide all kinds of services rapidly. And this kind of integration really makes that quite seamless. If a mother comes in and delivers and has uh, heavy bleeding and we are unable to control that bleeding and we need to do special surgery or special procedures to, 24-7 we are able to do that because of that unique integration.
1: Another really exciting area of work is studying the placenta. What can you tell us about this?
2: The placenta is an enigma. The placenta is the organ of life. It is what sustains the pregnancy. It is what sustains the developing fetus. It's the vehicle of oxygen and nutrition. And it is also the source of virtually every major obstetrical syndrome and complication. And we know so little about it. And fortunately that is changing. We have lots of really interesting research dedicated to placentation, placental development, placental function, led by Dr. Virginia Wynn, who has really done some wonderful groundbreaking work. In fact, she's trying to almost create these models, these in vitro models of placenta growing, culturing stem cells that form the placenta and that way better understanding what goes right, what goes wrong, how a placenta develops in such a way that or with such dysfunction that it impacts fetal growth negatively, that it results in a disease called preeclampsia, an ancient disease that to this day kills Thousands of women worldwide are one treatment for a disorder like preeclampsia, which is a disorder of the placenta, is rather crude. It's to deliver the placenta, which means delivering the baby, which is fine if the baby is mature. It is very problematic if the baby is very premature. But you have to do because the mother's health and life is at such risk. The level of understanding of why the placental development goes wrong, causing a full spectrum of obstetrical complications, I think is one of, as fetal therapy is, I think is equally exciting. We're so fortunate to have someone like Dr. Yair Blumenfeld, who is leading our fetal therapy program, and Dr. Virginia Wynn, dedicated to and leading our placental program on a basic science level, and Dr. Deirdre Lyle, who is really leading the placental disorders program on a clinical level. So that integration of basic science and clinical and leaders in each of these areas has allowed us to embrace the totality of investigation and hopefully really advance that science.
1: Yeah, it's sounding like it's an overlooked area or maybe not as exciting as the fetal surgeries.
2: I would agree with that. Everyone is intrigued and enamored by repairing and treating fetal disease in the uterus. And it is, it is exciting. And the developments in genetics and genomics and and so forth has transformed so much of prenatal diagnostics and fetal therapy. It is an area of such rapid growth, but there isn't going to be a pregnancy if there is a dysfunctional placenta. And to think that we could get to a point that ancient illnesses can be understood better and potentially treated and lives, women's lives saved, I think is as if not more exciting. Mm -hmm.
1: The surgery on Karen and her unborn baby, who they named Victoria, was a success. Victoria was only the 14th baby to undergo this fetal surgery in the United States. Now the waiting began. Baby wasn't due for another 15 weeks before Victoria had other plans. She came into the world nine weeks early. Many people with spina bifida have difficulties with their lower extremities. One hope was that the fetal surgery would allow Victoria to walk
0: one day. The First thing I looked for was, is she moving her legs? And she was, mm-hmm. she moved her legs, she was moving her legs. And I remember texting my whole family saying, she's moving her legs, yeah. she's moving her legs. Yeah, I- definitely cherish and uh, celebrate the small wins.
1: philanthropy help with all the work that's being done in maternal fetal medicine?
2: Well, we are very fortunate that we live in the philanthropic environment at Stanford in the Bay Area that we do, that we have supporters, former patients or not, who understand the importance of philanthropy in creating stable platforms providing jet fuel to programs that really need that kind of injection of support. It can be transformative. And certainly at Stanford with the development of the Dunleavy Center for Maternal Fetal Medicine, what it did was to create a stable platform of investigation to take investigators who we're operating in silos, researching in silos and say, look, we have a central home for maternal, fetal medicine and obstetrical research here at Stanford. A place where the totality of that specialty from basic science through to population health can have a hub where investigators both at Stanford regionally and internationally know that there is an address for that kind of scientific investigation in one place at Stanford University. And so that would not have existed without this incredible gift, that at the same time, philanthropy can never be the totality. You have to leverage those gifts and then build upon them. And that's their purpose. It's to give you A platform to give you those added resources to then start thinking of novel ideas, getting grants and other kinds of support to continue to build on what philanthropy has helped lay a foundation for. And I would say that without that kind of stability that a philanthropic gift can give, when you are completely and trying to maintain a stable team through grants you end up having to cycle through your teams as your your grants wax and wane you lose talent it's a very painful process what we've been given the gift of is a stable foundation to build and build and build without losing without constantly having that deficits of talent. I feel very fortunate that we have donors who truly appreciate the impact of maternal and child health on the lives of women and children and families and generations. And some donors like the Dunleavy family that launched the Dunleavy Center for our research program, uh, the David and Lucille Packard foundation who have contributed so massively to our hospital and to our history and to our future with an an ongoing large philanthropic gift. These are truly, in my mind, visionary donors who can see the impact that caring for women and children what it can do to societies, what it can do to the health of families, what it can do to a healthy future for everybody.
1: So in your spare time, you're also a member of the hospital's famous band, Midnight Rounds. Can you tell us about your experience in the band and the role music plays in your life and your career?
2: Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. I, learn how to play the drums moderately well. And the band was started by um, pediatric surgeons and a pediatric surgery nurse practitioner. Someone heard that I played the drums and I'd never been in a band before. I just played drums on my own listening to music. And so they asked me to sit with them and play. And it was so much fun. You know, we knew each other from the hospital, we operate together, and suddenly we were making music together. And it just kind of grew. You know, the term midnight rounds came up because, well, one, that's kind of the time we had to practice. But two, we were invited to play for a retirement party of a faculty member and we hadn't been playing together that much, and I was actually a bit nervous about it because I thought we we weren't going to necessarily sound great. But we rehearsed, and we were we felt pretty good. And then I got a call about a week and a half before we were supposed to play. saying, oh by the way, Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood are going to be there, and that caused mass panic. We just went crazy. We we'd practice till like two in the morning, just trying not to look like clowns. And sure enough, we played and there was Garth Brooks and Trisha and they were awesome. They were so nice. And um we just started developing a following and people would come after work and to whatever restaurant or bar we were playing at and The restaurant and bar loved it because they had all these people from Stanford come in and buying food and drinks. And so, uh, yeah, we're very much a Stanford band. I love it. It's been a lot of fun.
1: It sounds like fun. That was a little excerpt from Midnight Rounds, the hospital's unofficial band. You all sound great. I have one last question, which is since Lucille Packard was an avid lover of nature and nature was intentionally incorporated as a healing element in our hospital's design, we like to end every episode with this question, which is what is your personal connection to nature and how will nature be integrated into the new West building?
2: I was born in Egypt. I spent many years in North Africa and in, in Libya. So I've always had this love of sun and light and heat. And then coming to California was just wonderful because it had that feel. And Packard, the hospital, gives me that feel. There is a warmth about it. There is a quality to the light that, and to the architecture that's not dense and dark, but it feels part of the surrounding, part of those beautiful pastel colors that's the Bay Area. There's just a sense that this building is not a stranger to the land, that it belongs on the landscape, both the original Packard building and the new building. And the gardens that have been uh, designed around and within the the new hospital and the reimagined space all add to that so I consider we are creatures of nature and this hospital is organic to its environment it's warm it's full of light and uh, full of hope
1: that's beautiful well, thank you so much, Dr. El I so appreciate you taking the time today and answering the questions and also just the work that you're doing for maternal and fetal health. I think I can speak on behalf of all of our listeners that we're so thankful for all the work that you're doing.
2: Well, thank you so much. It is, uh, it is beyond a privilege and I feel blessed that I, I get to do what I do every day.
1: As I was speaking to Dr. Yasser Al Saeed, above and beyond the innovations he described, I was struck by the importance he placed on the mother in this process. As he says, the health of moms like Karen are always at the front and center. I'm Sarah Davis, and this is the Care Plus Cures podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Packard Foundation for Children's Health. You can find out more about the foundation's work and donate to Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Stanford at supportLPCH.org. You can follow us and subscribe to the podcast at carepluscures.org. That's carepluscures.org. As a donor myself, I am proud that my donation supports care, comfort, and cures for patients at Packard Children's Hospital and beyond. We hope you enjoyed this episode.